Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Watts Radio. I'm Jeff. And I'm Haji. And we'll be your hosts for this hour. This week on Watts Radio, we discuss hydrogen. Does that sound familiar? That does sound familiar, and that's because we didn't quite say enough about hydrogen last time, so we're going to talk a little bit more with Professor Joan Ogden of UC Davis. How can you say enough about my favorite hot gas, Jeff? I don't think it's possible. We'll also discuss some current events in energy, including big news in coal consumption, as well as um, you know a quick peek into our favorite musky corner with America's favorite superhero, Elon Musk. Hmm, I smell that musk from here. We'll also debut the first in our now long-running segments of Great People in Energy. This week, we discuss James Watt, a famous Scottish inventor. Uh, his name has significance. Lots of significance. All that and more when we return on Watts Radio. Dreams in a purple haze 
On marked stones in the burial ground On marked wheel keeps the wagon go round Casablanca, have you heard the news? Fog won't lift, I got the jet lag blue to Watts Radio. If you've ever missed a Watts Radio episode, be sure to tune in to wattsradio.org from a browser or favorite device. Jeff, I love the internet. I think we all love the internet. But you know what we're not talking about right now? Bitcoin. So let's talk about energy. Let's talk about energy, Jeff. Let's talk about energy all the time. So, uh, Jeff, this week I was reading that China suspended all imports of coal from North Korea. That's big news. So, um, for once, China has decided to go ahead with UN security sanctions and decide to ban imports from Korea for a year, North Korea. This UN, I love big. that band. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> so um the united nations they are not huge fans of nuclear proliferation and so north korea has been testing an experiment with nuclear capable weapons and so the un would prefer things to not happen so uh china has decided to stop importing coal which is a big big deal because 40 percent of north korea's exports are coal um and a good chunk of that is to china it's true, actually. So the uh, one of the big ways that uh, North Korea gets any of their currency is through the export of coal to China. Um, unfortunately, you know, uh, as is usually the case when these things come to pass and, uh, you know, North Korea gets left holding the stick, is that the people that are really going to suffer are probably going to be people on the ground. Um, and, uh, you know, for those of you who might be optimistic, thinking that, hey, any not used coal is good coal, Actually, uh, sorry, coal use is probably going to go up, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, because we don't have the clean power plan. Um, for those of you that uh, just woke up, uh, President Donald Trump uh, recently elected uh, and uh, uh, will not be probably continuing or definitely not continuing any of Obama's signature environmental actions, including the clean power plan, which was... Now, now, Hans, wait a minute. You just said that coal was going to go up in the United States, but I was of the impression that market forces are going to prevent coal from ever coming back despite what Trump says. Yes, it's probably true that uh, at the, that in the long run, um, coal is not going to become not going to become a new source of uh, generation in the US, but lots of coal plants are going to continue to be used. And those coal plants that are going to continue to run are going to keep using lots of coal because it's cheap, cheap power because those plants have been there forever. Awesome. However, that's not quite the full story. It turns out a bunch of coal power plants are actually going to shut down. So we have the um, Navajo coal plant in Arizona, one of the biggest coal power plants in the U.S. Um, they've actually decided to shut down because it's too dang expensive to keep operating. So, you know, on one hand, you have the Energy Information Agency saying, you know, if natural gas prices go up, which they could, we're going to see coal coming in unless you have a backstop policy like the Clean Power Plan preventing that from happening. But 
what we really have right now is the economics in the long term for coal still don't make sense regardless of what Trump is doing. Okay, maybe, 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 maybe there's some bad economics for coal in the long run. But I'm just, Jeff, you're just being really pessimistic because coal capture and sequestration uh, is going to be a breakthrough technology, which is really just going to revolutionize the industry. And I'm, I'm, I'm lying. That's not true. So what else is going on in the world of energy? Well, uh, Jeff, it's not exactly um, energy, but uh, scientists around the world are getting um, very interested in politics. Um, I've been reading lots of stories about scientists who feel like they have to, you know, get involved in politics. Now, now normally scientists are people that are, you know, traditionally apolitical creatures. Uh, so this is a little bit of a news. And, um, you know, a lot of these people do research in energy and climate. And uh, I think they think it's important now uh, to get involved. They don't feel like they have the luxury. Um, I was reading this week about one Michael Eisen, a, a young evolutionary biologist uh, who studies flies uh, at the University of California, Berkeley. He is the co-founder of the pioneering open access journal, the Public Library of Science, and a prolific tweeter. Um, he is actually going to be running for Senate uh, in the U.S., uh, uh, in California. I mean, I think California is definitely the place where we need more liberal politicians. So good job, California, finally sticking it to the uh, conservative masses there and getting some scientists elected. Um, no, but it is important to engage with people with good scientific understanding in the policymaking process. That's said uh, as a scientist, so I probably have a little bit of a bias there. But um, it would be cool if we could see more scientists getting involved in the policymaking and poli policy process and running for office for things. Indeed, Jeff. Indeed. Although, you know, uh, scientists normally want to do science, and that isn't normally making policy. Um, you know, Jeff, have you ever ridden a bus? I've ridden on some buses, yeah. Yeah? Um, have you ever ridden on an electric bus? Actually, yes. Okay, well, then, really, it's not quite as surprising. But, you know, I was reading last week, uh, basically, that... Uh, the owner of a big electric bus company um, was uh, suggesting that all transit buses sold will be electric by 2030. That's um, not too many years off. That seems pretty quick. Uh, I mean, that's surprising. So when we think about it, moving all of our buses over to electric in the U.S., that's, that's a pretty big impact. Um, how many buses are there currently in the U.S., Hanj? I don't know. At least more than 12. So it'll be fun to watch this development take place over time. Um, and it seems pretty ambitious. I mean, other places have pretty ambitious goals for electric vehicles in general. Germany is looking to get all new car sales electric by 2030-ish time frame. California's aggressive goals for uh, getting EVs on the road for transportation purposes. Again, it's getting to the point where it's similar to move most vehicles over to electric drivetrain by 2030, 2035 territory. So electric buses, getting freight electrified, getting public transportation more electrified, that's all kind of in line with it. So, yeah. I think it's pretty cool. You know, I, I think normally riding the bus is not actually that popular, but electric buses are cool. And so maybe if buses are electric, more people will ride them. You know, speaking of cool electric vehicles, Jeff, uh, the Bolt came out last week. Do you 
Do you know about the Bolt? Uh, isn't that the Chevy Volt? Are are you saying Volt with a V? That's the uh, you know, a plug-in hybrid vehicle with a thirty-mile range that's been around for several years now. Or is this something different? No, that old thing. That's revolting. This is the Bolt. No, the Bolt is an all-battery electric. Oh yeah, you don't have to put any gas in this baby. So it's what, like 300-ish mile range and costs a cool $100,000 like the Tesla Model S, or is it something different? You know, actually, that is the way they're selling it, though. They're calling it the Chevy Tesla, so people know that it's electric. No, uh, actually, it's a uh, thirty. It's a thirty-seven thousand uh, dollar, two hundred and forty mile, two hundred and thirty mile, uh, all electric vehicle. It looks a lot like the Spark. Um, it's a compact four door. Uh, it's a compact four door car, um, and it's got exceptional electric range. It builds on all the technology that the Volt seemed to nail in their plug-in hybrid vehicle. Um, and, uh, for all intents and purposes, it seems like it's going to be a great car. My dad's neighbors picked one up. I checked it out. It is pretty cool. Um, you know, it's got one pedal driving. So that's where you can never use the brake if you don't want to. Uh, as you take your foot off the gas pedal, there's aggressive regenerative braking, which means the car starts slowing down and there's a lot of benefits. It also has, because it's an electric vehicle, amazing acceleration. Um, and then there's, if you're living in California, the $37,000 sticker price is not what you end up paying. There's numerous tax credits, and so these things are actually dropping to the sub $30,000 range, which means for an electric vehicle, that's pretty cool. They're here today. They're starting to be competitive. So this goes a pretty long way for California's goals of shifting everybody over to EVs in the 2030-ish time horizon. Indeed. This is an electric vehicle that a lot of people, um, you know, if you have a little bit of tax liability, you know, you can get for under 30 k and quite frankly... Uh, it can meet most of your driving needs. Um, can meet a long commute day. Um, with if you have charging infrastructure at your workplace, you might even be able to make this work as your primary vehicle. Um, for uh, all intents and purposes. So I think it's a pretty awesome vehicle. It's a great car, Jeff, and partly because it's got a lot of range. And that the reason that we're seeing these cars with so much range is because electric vehicle batteries have become very inexpensive. That's awesome. So soon we can bury them in our yard, just like what we do with other inexpensive things like guns and gold. And I mean, what what else can we do with these lithium-ion batteries? Has anyone come up with anything cool to do with them other than EVs? Yes. In fact, Elon Musk, America's favorite superhero, has decided that the other thing we should be doing with these batteries is connecting them to the electricity grid. Um, in fact, Tesla recently, we reported on that here um, on the program, uh, recently installed uh, upwards of 80 megawatts, almost 90 megawatts of uh, lithium-ion batteries in Elisa. Canyon in Southern California. Um, and that installation has, um, uh, that installation is going to be used to support um, renewable integration in the grid. Um, and batteries uh, have achieved a lot of attention because they might allow for us to have more wind and solar work their way into the grid. That sounds awesome. I mean, we need a good way to get more solar wind penetrated into the grid. Um, and 
uh, that that seems like no downside. And if Elon Musk is going to push this along, that's great. Is anybody else doing anything? Right. And as these battery prices are coming down, we're seeing more and more applications. In fact, a Spanish coal plant recently installed a, lo- a bunch of lithium-ion batteries. See, now the problem is in Spain and in a lot of places where we have more renewable generation, um, fossil generators are being asked to turn off and on. Now, the problem for coal plants is when they have to ramp, and that's when they have to like go between uh, full speed and half speed or between shutting down and running, um, it's very inefficient. Uh, They waste a lot of energy powering up and down. And so in order to avoid ramping, um, the Spanish coal plant is is installing these batteries because they can generate very inexpensive electricity. And uh, that allows them to keep running. Um, So that's why we want to see these electric uh, battery prices keep coming down to allow more fossil energy. So what you're saying is uh, Trump's a pretty big proponent of this technology because that's what's going to allow him to make coal competitive again that does not seem quite what we want indeed well jeff i'll tell you what i do want america's favorite superhero yes iron man himself Elon Musk. What's going on in that corner that smells like Musk? Mm, Musk is cooking. I'll tell you what, Jeff. He's out there building electric vehicles and rockets and otherwise just saving the world one step at a time. No, this week, um, or actually a couple of developments. Last week, uh, we Elon Musk was tweeting some political bents. Uh, you know, Musk, he's been getting some attention lately because he's actually been getting pretty cozy with Trump. Oh, that sounds a little dire. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Musk has been serving on Trump's Council of Business Barons or Economic... uh, Business billionaires, people with a lot of wealth that do things, maybe. Yeah, the robber barons of billionaires. Um, At any rate, so Elon tweeted some um, uh, tweets, letters, uh, words. I guess words is probably the maximum aggregation. Words, as long as there were 140 characters or less. Right. Um, Yep, I'm going to think now about really long words. Um, Okay, so anyway, yeah, he tweeted about uh, the travel ban. Um, For those of you that also are waking up from a a long siesta, uh, our new president tried to pass a travel ban um, last week or actually a couple weeks ago, uh, banning um, um, group visa holders and green card holders. Well, not really green card holders, but visa holders from seven predominantly Muslim countries. Um, At any rate, before you know it, uh, Elon had deleted the tweet um, it seems he wasn't quite sure he really wanted to tweet against these things that have become popular um, punching bags among the tech uh, leaders. Um, but also this week, uh, you know, uh, SpaceX, another Elon Musk company, had a uh, pretty exciting uh, event. They launched a uh, capsule from the uh, famous Cape Canaveral launch pad that I think launched a number of Apollo missions. Um, and they managed to land their famous Falcon 9 rocket vertical landing. It was very exciting. I enjoyed it, Jeff. I'm just saying. I like watching that thing land. I think rockets are pretty cool. The other major things that have been happening in that musky corner, though, is uh, the, the, the Tesla Model 3 stuff is heating up a little bit for it. So the Bolt, which was great, did get released, and now Tesla is going to try and have to actually meet their Model 3 schedule for release. Um, if they don't do it, uh, well, uh, I don't 
I don't know, that's probably not great. A lot of investors now have been basically expecting them not to make it. But with market share now being met by a competitor, they might need to get something out or they might not be able to compete in the marketplace. So we'll see what ends up happening with that. Um, I, for one, am not too optimistic about their, them hitting their deadlines, but you never know. And we'll be sure to let you know on Watts Radio in the future. I'm, I'm pretty optimistic, too. Jeff, awesome. I feel like that was a weak, musky corner. I didn't think we had a lot this week. No. Well, you know, he can't save the world every week. Uh, only once in a while. Yeah, Jeff, you know what was exciting this week? Uh, I could not take my eyes off the damn news. Ah, uh, yes. We're not talking about anything other than water and floods right. and dams. Yes, Jeff, in California this week, there was a lot of, or actually for the last two weeks, there's been a lot of news about the incredible, historic, record-breaking levels of precipitation the state has been receiving. So California, once known for being uh, a drought struck in barren wasteland of nothing but tech billionaires has now taken a little bit of a you know uh, alter ego turned into its own you know differing character and become flood prone Mm -hmm. many many floods are now starting to occur um if you've been driving up from davis to sacramento across the causeway you'll notice that they've started flooding those uh areas we're seeing some riparian restoration occurring i guess um but uh more importantly we can now maybe take our kayaks out there and punt through the causeway if we so choose Uh, get back to our classic days of uh limited connectivity um um, nobody go out in the causeway right now and go kayaking i'm sure it's quite dangerous um but anyway speaking of the parched arid landscape of the silicon valley uh, no, we have been seeing this record-breaking levels of precipitation. Jeff is right. Um, but no, I was talking about Jeff, and I was trying. I thought we were stretching necessarily to find an energy connection here. Um, but I was trying to bring up the Oroville Dam, which is the tallest dam in the U.S. and also is the home of a um, small hydroelectric power plant. Um, the dam was making big news this week uh, and last week because it had... Um, some structural failures, not the dam itself, actually, but a spillway, two spillways, actually, both the main spillway and the emergency spillway. You see, problems actually started when um, a lot of runoff through the main spillway and debris caused them to shut the power plant. In order to shut the power plant down to clear it out, they actually uh, had some other problems. And these cascading series of failures caused them to basically, um, well, anyway, have to use the emergency spillway. Uh, on the dam, and then they had to evacuate almost 200,000 people. There's a lot of concerns associated with erosion, really, of um, the infrastructure uh, from the spillway. And so this is a major issue. Uh, It's been developing. Um, Recently, they've been able to stabilize it. Um, But we'll see what ends up happening with that. Uh, Precipitation continues to fall. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a developing issue. Precipitation continues to fall, Jeff. Yeah, that, that it does. I was working up to a peak there. We had a couple hundred thousand people evacuated. Precipitation fell. Precipitation fell. And on that, uh, note of things falling, we're going to go cut to some great listening tunes. And when we come back, we're going to talk about great people in energy.
Welcome back to Watts Radio. Welcome back, Jeff. If you've missed any Watts Radio episodes, be sure to check us out on the intertubes at wattsradio.org. We maintain a radio repository of all of our energy brilliance. What happens if I don't have access to the interwebs, Jeff? Great news. If you're in the Davis, Sacramento area, tune in to KDVS Davis 90.3 FM every Friday at 8 a.m. Jeff, I'm really excited about our newest long-running inaugural segment great people in energy 
It's where we get to talk to you about important founders of the energy world. Today, we're going to talk to you a little bit about James Watt. James Watt, born 1736 in Green Rock, Scotland, was a Scottish instrument maker, inventor, whose steam engine contributed substantially to the Industrial Revolution. James Watt. So, James Watt, he made a bunch of advances to engines, which... Steam engines. So what they do is they take this high temperature working fluid. You can think of as steam. And if you ever had a pot on on the stove and you started heating it up and it started to boil, you'll notice that sometimes the lid of the pot will bubble off and maybe pop off. And so that's that's steam doing work. And so what James Watt really was able to do was improve engines to capture the steam to do work, to basically spin a rotor. And when you start spinning things you can really do a lot of cool things okay yeah no this is actually serious stuff james watt's steam engine was one of the key re- key enabling technologies of the industrial revolution there'd been some steam engines before actually james newcomb had made a steam engine some 15 years prior but the steam engines of that time were very inefficient and they weren't able to actually generate a lot of f- torque um, from steam power now what watt was able to do was to improve the um uh, conversion efficiency of, of the steam engine dramatically and that allowed it to become a far more useful technology ushering in an era of steam power um so the, for those of you who don't remember the industrial revolution at least i wasn't born then um you know uh this was a really big thing uh so yeah james watt now James Watt overcame some adversity. You know, I was reading, Jeff, that... um, I gotta use my other voice. James was a thin, weakly child who suffered from migraines and toothaches. So, you know, I hear that he had to, uh, he had to, like, you know, work hard. Yeah, being a white man living in the 1800s, it really was... uh, pretty rough if you had toothaches and migraines no really it probably was but um he did invent important things and he is the reason we talk about watts and why that we use as a unit of power um they were named after him he's a big deal in the world of energy yeah in fact he's the namesake of this program watts radio watts radio and you know what else about james watt you know james watt was sort of an interdisciplinary and applied um engineer you know he combined a lot of knowledge from dairy diverse fields um and he applied it practically um to create some you know very powerful mechanistic uh systems and and um that really did change the world so it's true so uh our hats off to james watt here's to you james james
Previously on Watts Radio, we talked to uh, Professor Joan Ogden about hydrogen, the fuel of the future, which is actually here today. Um, So Joan had a lot of really great things to say about hydrogen, and I think we still have a few more topics and issues that we want to cover. So let's jump to that. Okay, I'm Joan Ogden. I'm a professor at UC Davis, and I work on alternative fuels and vehicles. And I head up a program of a whole bunch of researchers looking at different things like electric vehicles, hydrogen vehicles, and looking at what their future role might be in a low-carbon energy system. Electric vehicles seem to really take off when we found a superhero champion in the form of Elon Musk and Tesla (laughs) really pushing them forward. Are there any, I guess, superheroes in the hydrogen realm that are set to emerge? Um, Are there any that you can think of now that are starting to do what Elon Musk did for the electric car? Or are we still in dire need of the hydrogen superhero? Okay, a hydrogen superhero. In the hydrogen world, it's interesting. It's a fairly genteel bunch of people, and I know because I've been hanging out with them for the last 30 years, right? Uh, We have a lot of people who are very creative, hardworking, who've been working in all kinds of different areas of this. The research labs, auto companies, uh, entrepreneurs are building stations, all kinds of people. Um, 
there's a fair amount of sharing of credit. So I don't think there's anybody who really swashbuckles out there and says, you know, I'm Mr. or Ms. Hydrogen, really. Instead, you have kind of this cadre of people who've been working this hard problem together for a long time and, um, and really supporting each other. It's a pretty great community. So if I was thinking of a hero, instead of it being one person up there putting the message out, it might be more like one of those ads where you look and you see a whole field of people just all hanging out of all you know ages and types and doing different things. Um, that's kind of how I, I think of it. And I guess those are the people who are my heroes uh, who have done this stuff. Include some policymakers, too, who stuck to the zero emission vehicle mandate, uh, those kinds of things. A lot of very cool engineers. Um, you know, one of, one, of my, one of my personal heroes is a Japanese engineer who's also the father of the Prius who works for Toyota. And I was at a meeting with him recently, and he told a story about working on hydrogen and fuel cells for a long time. He's probably roughly 60, I would guess, working on this for a long time. And he told a story about how his grandfather, right after World War II, uh, planted some cherry trees. And it took a while for those things to flower and become beautiful and to spread and, and become, you know, the gorgeous trees that we all really appreciate, especially we think of, I think, in terms of Japan. And his grandfather said, you know, I know I'm not going to live to see this, but you will. And, and uh, this guy always remembered that. And at the end of his talk about all these details of fuel cells and electrochemistry and all that kind of stuff, he showed a picture of these beautiful cherry trees outside his grandfather's house that he had built. And he said, it's time for us to plant something. And so that's the way he sees his work. And a guy like that who can be, uh, you know, this hardcore engineer, but also so poetic about it, uh, I guess that's a, that's a personal hero. And I kind of wished he could, uh, he could tell that story to everybody. Let's talk about um, hydrogen for a second, like fuel. So, like, um, you know, if you are pumping 10 gallons a minute, of gasoline into a car. That's an insane amount of energy. At like 120 megajoules a gallon, it's like 20 megawatts, okay? So if you have a big gas station with like a bunch of pumps, you know, like 10, 10 pumps or something, that's like a power plant's worth of energy, okay? So that's a lot of energy when you think about like how much you want to transition to a new fuel pathway, right? And obviously, hydrogen's more efficient to combust or to actually to uh, pyrolyze or whatever in a fuel stack. Um, and so you don't need quite as much. But when we talk about transitioning transportation fuel, you know, we're talking about a tremendous amount of energy, both at in quantity and in velocity, right? And so um, where is all this hydrogen coming from? How are we getting it fast enough in a renewable standpoint to get it at that kind of flow, to like get it to market in that volume? Okay, that's a, that's a great question. So how do you make and deliver hydrogen in large quantities, large enough quantities that you can refuel lots of cars, that kind of thing? Well, uh, hydrogen is actually a lot more like electricity than it is like gasoline. Okay, think about gasoline. There's really one source that gets used most of the time, which is crude oil, petroleum, right? And, and you refine that and you make gasoline and diesel out of that and then distribute it around by trucks. Electricity can come from almost anything and so can hydrogen. Okay, with electricity, you can make it from wind power, solar power, you can burn natural gas, you can burn coal, you can use nuclear power, you can use all these different things to make electricity. The same thing is true for hydrogen. You can use just about anything. So if you think about it, uh, there's a lot of water in the world, H2O, and there's a lot of hydrocarbons, everything from fossil fuels to 
plant matter and biomass, things that are grown, they're all hydrocarbons. You can get hydrogen out of either one of those. So you can start with electricity and electrolyze water, split the water and get hydrogen that way. So you can capture solar energy, wind energy, hydropower, uh, any kind of uh, geothermal, any of those things. Uh, you also can take a hydrocarbon and process that at high temperature and then uh, separate out the hydrogen. So you could start with a fossil fuel, natural gas, or you could start with biomass, which is a hydrocarbon. In some cases, you could even separate the hydrogen out and then take that carbon and sequester it underground, store it underground, uh, and keep it out of the atmosphere, something called carbon capture and sequestration. Uh, so there are a lot of ways to make hydrogen, a lot of ways to make electricity. Probably uh, with, with uh, gasoline, we make it from crude oil, we refine it, we move it around. The system looks kind of the same no matter where you are for making and delivering it in the sense that you have a refinery and you have pipelines and trucks and so on. With hydrogen or electricity, it can be very different. If you're in a part of the country that's got cheap hydropower, maybe use that to make your electricity or make your electrolytic hydrogen. If you're in a very sunny area, maybe you're using solar power, maybe you're using wind. Uh, so it's kind of a regional system with hydrogen or with electricity. Now, the good news is for both of those um, carriers, we have a lot of alternatives to fossil fuels that could be captured, and they can be captured at large scale. Uh, so you can, there's a lot of, in California, for example, we have a lot of solar energy. We have a significant amount of wind energy. We have some crop wastes and things like that, too, and uh, urban waste that could be used. So there are a lot of um, resources that could be brought to bear. And that's one of the really exciting things about both of those energy carriers is you can tap into that. So that's where the hydrogen comes from in terms of the, the, the major sources. And maybe you can just take my word for it. They're, they're huge resources. Enough uh, solar energy falls on the, the surface of the earth uh, to power our industrial civilization something like 10,000 times over. I mean, it's a huge amount of energy. Um, so there's a lot of renewable energy that could be captured. And then in terms of this flow rate of getting the fuel into the car, you can get enough hydrogen into a car for a 350-mile range in about maybe five minutes. And three to five minutes, if you get enough, uh, if you were decanting, say, 10 gallons into a car. I've, t I've actually gone around and timed this for years just to see what the local pumps are like, uh, just because it's kind of fun. And it's, you know, a minute and a half to three minutes, depending on what the, the flow rate is. So it's, it's comparable. And it is a lot of energy. Uh, our fuels pack a tremendous amount of energy into a small volume. And, you know, wow, this is a lot of energy. But to do, a, and, and we don't do electricity quite that fast, in part because we don't want to have to have 100 kilowatt lines going into our house. That would be kind of dangerous. Or even with a fast charger, it's a lot of energy to have in one place, and you need a thick cable, you need a lot of hardware. So um, part of the reason with the, is with the, the, the batteries are slower to charge is just you'd have to pump a lot of power through there, and both the battery and the, uh, the cabling and all that stuff, it would be hard to, to move it that fast. You're listening to Watts Radio on KDVS. We're talking to Professor Joan Ogden about hydrogen and what it means to power our cars on the fuel of the future. So, Joan, I, you've talked fairly optimistically about hydrogen, but I, I can't help but wondering, is hydrogen really just a California thing? Is California yet again going at something entirely alone, 
or are we seeing promising things outside of California to really help move hydrogen vehicles forward? That is a really great question. So California is going in hydrogen. They're taking a leadership position, definitely leaderships within the United States. But there are hydrogen projects going on around the world. And really, there are sort of clusters of developing hydrogen. One of the interesting things about hydrogen, one of the challenges is that you need to get the cars and the stations there in the same place at the same time. It's very spatial. It's very geographic and regional. So when you think about this, uh, if you brought a bunch of hydrogen cars somewhere and there were no stations, well, that's not going to work. If you build hydrogen stations and there's no cars, that's not going to work. No, it's the chicken and egg problem. So uh, there are several regions in the world, so-called lighthouse regions, that have uh, stepped up and are developing a network. So we have to think network. We can't just think a car or a station by itself. That's not what it's about. It's about the whole system uh, together. So you have the cars and you have the fuel. And so uh, we see this developing in California. We see this several places in Europe, notably in Germany, but also in the UK and other places. Uh, we see this in Japan. That's a big center for hydrogen development. And there are four hydrogen cities that are being planned with uh, you know, tens to hundreds of stations planned and vehicles coming there as well. So those are the places that are doing what I like to think of as a networked demo. They're doing it not at full scale. It's not like every car is going to run on hydrogen and every station is going to have it. But they're doing it at a big enough scale to test it as a network to see how these things work together. Are people going to drive around, be able to drive around, let's say, the state of California uh, freely and be able to get fuel when they need it? Uh, are the cars going to work well? Are people going to like them? Um, all those things are things you test out by getting a whole bunch of consumers in those cars and a whole bunch of stations for them to do and just see how it works. So we're at that stage. And there's, I say, there's several lighthouse places trying it out. California's one, but there are Europe, Japan, also South Korea, and I think we're going to see it in China as well in terms especially the heavy bus, you know, buses and heavy vehicles. Other than the, the lighthouse cities, how long do you think it's going to be before we start seeing it you know, deployed in, uh, I guess, less uh, liberal bastions of technological hope. Like, when will we start seeing hydrogen vehicles in Houston, Texas, or in Fargo, North Dakota? Okay, I think maybe in Houston, Texas before Fargo, North Dakota, but who knows? So, I, I, okay, so I think the way this is going to go, um, and this is assuming a bunch of things. This is assuming that people like this technology and the markets develop rapidly in places like California and in Japan and in Europe and that this starts to take off. I think what will happen then is we'll see a series of lighthouse areas. In the United States, California is going to go first, but probably soon after that would be the Northeast. And the Northeast corridor between Washington and Boston, there's interest, there are plans, there are a few stations being built. Um, and that, so that's the next place in the United States where it's going to start. After that, actually, Texas, uh, Chicago, uh, a number of cities, you can, uh, you can look at this, and we've done some hypothetical studies looking at all the cities of over a million people, which is about 73 in the United States, and just kind of sketched out what could this look like. So I think it would be a series of adoptions in different places. And as you go to a new place, in some ways, you're starting over because you have to build a new network of stations. But once it's worked in a couple of places, then it'll go faster. Also, the more cars you have out there, the more you'll buy down the cost. So the cost of the car should come down over time to make it more affordable in, uh, in other places. So if this was successful, I would see this unfolding over, you know, over several decades 
and a series of more and more lighthouse cities. Probably you'll see this more in uh, in urban areas uh, originally that have all that have the policies in place to support it. Uh, there are uh, ZEV regulations in a number of other states aside from California. Those would be likely places to see both uh, hydrogen cars, also electric cars. Probably places where you see electric cars going in now. Those may be places where you'll see hydrogen cars, uh, you know, following along. Um, and then you'll also have some connectivity between cities. So you would certainly see hydrogen stations along interstates, that kind of thing. Turns out the number of stations along interstates is actually pretty small compared to all the ones in the cities. That's where most of the people live and where we do most of our driving. So when did you first drive in a hydrogen vehicle? Was it an enjoyable experience? Did it leave something wanting? Okay, I'll, I'll tell you the first hydrogen vehicle I ever drove. You may, may or may not be impressed by this. It was a golf cart, actually. And I was visiting a friend of mine, a guy named Peter Lehman, who teaches at Humboldt State. He still runs an energy center up there. And uh, he had built his own fuel cell um, golf cart. And so we were down in Palm Springs or somewhere in Southern California, and we're driving around. And so he said, you want to drive it? And I said, yeah. And I mean, this was like a fuel cell it was under the seat, you know, and there were some hydrogen tanks there. And he'd built his own station. He built all his own stuff. It was very cool. So, uh, so I was driving along in this, you know, in this street, and this car pulls around and looks at me impatiently and goes, and zooms around. So I, I yelled at him, "Take a look at the future, buddy!" And uh, Peter and I both laughed about that a lot. Um, a few years after that, I was over in Germany, and um, I was uh, had the the pleasure of visiting a lab there where they were developing uh, fuel cell cars. And this was um, just an amazing, amazing lab. It was run by this guy named Ferdinand Panic, and, um, and then there were all these people who were about 24 and stayed up about 24 hours a day working on this stuff. And, they were, and it was just amazing energy. So, uh, and they were testing everything. They were doing, really doing it right. And then I got to drive in a hydrogen car, and that was really a pretty great experience, too. They were starting to miniaturize. Uh, the hydrogen then. The golf cart I rode in, it probably had a range of 10 miles or something. I mean, it was, it was just to demonstrate you could do it. But they were working on real cars and serious cars. Uh, another thing I really remember about driving hydrogen cars, in, in 2007, a Honda came out with its Honda Clarity, which is an amazing car um, and, uh, you know, a compact car. And they took a bunch of people, a bunch of press people, but also a bunch of researchers, a few people, such as myself, who got to go along. We went to Laguna Seca, which is a track where they test race cars. And um, this was out in the coast, not too far from, um, from Big Sur. And so there we were at this track, and we, got, we each got to drive the hydrogen car, and it was just really a thrill. The thing moves out. Electric vehicles are wonderful to drive. Battery vehicles and hydrogen vehicles just have this smooth... Uh, you know, torque at low speed that is just really a, a thrilled. So, you know, took off on that, and I drove that thing around the track, and that was really a lot of fun. Plus, I'd never been on a racetrack before, so that was a lot of fun. And as I was standing there waiting for my second turn with all these journalists, I saw these two condors come and light on a hill not very far away. They were, you know, these giant birds, and I thought, wow, this is so cool. You know, here's this ancient uh, form of life here. Uh, still surviving here, and here's this very, very new thing. Uh, but it's not putting nasty stuff in the air. You know? So I thought, that's good. I don't want to put nasty stuff in the air with the condors right here. Yeah. So, um, so that, was a, that was really wonderful. And then recently, I've driven some of the, uh, some of the cars that are coming out. Um, the, um, 
the Honda car, the, the current version of Clarity, which is fa fabulous, and the Toyota Mirai, which is fabulous. Uh, so these are, these are really wonderful, uh, fun cars to drive. Have you seen any consumer products? Like with uh, fuel cells in them, like uh, people proposing cell phones or backup yeah. batteries and stuff. Yeah, you can use uh, you can use hydrogen fuel cells as battery replacements, so called. So they compete with batteries in consumer electronics. An interesting area where they're competing very successfully, and they're actually economic, is in forklifts. Now they use forklifts inside, so you don't want to have emissions there. You don't want to have people breathing exhaust and so forth. And so, in a lot of big warehouses, you've had battery forklifts. You can also use a fuel cell um, for a forklift. And the the fuel cells have shown themselves to have some advantages. One is in the refueling time is pretty quick, and with batteries, you have to change out the battery pack actually, which takes some time and you know extra equipment to do that. And also, the fuel cells. Um, performance uh, holds up during the whole time that you're running it. Whereas with the batteries, as they get in the lower state of charge, after you've been using the forklift with a battery for a while, the power uh, goes down. So you don't get as much oomph out of it. So the drivers like the fuel cells better. So that's a, a kind of an interesting niche thing. You also see fuel cells used for remote power applications like repeaters and cell phone towers that are out in the boondocks. And that's another application where fuel cells can actually compete economically in certain remote locations. And the reason is because they can, uh, if you truck some hydrogen up there, they're so efficient that they can last for a long time, more so than if you have to go up and replace batteries or recharge batteries, or even if you had to run an engine or something out there. Okay, so Joan, you get the whole, like let's say you get all these pieces in place. You get this network of infrastructure and vehicles and technology and fuel systems, and you have this whole ecosystem, right, for hydrogen cars. But what you're missing are people and and you know, how do you get people to actually want? Okay, so Joan, you get the whole, like, let's say you get all these pieces in place. You get this network of infrastructure and vehicles and technology and fuel systems, and you have this whole ecosystem, right, for hydrogen cars. But what you're missing are people. Okay, that's a great question. One of the really interesting things I've found is that the technology advances really fast in fuel cells. I was talking about how the size of the fuel cell came down. They're so great now. Everything is really good. And you can build hydrogen stations. You can come up with systems to dispense hydrogen. But it's not the way we've been doing things for the last 100 years, right? We've had internal combustion engines. We've had gasoline stations. We have that whole thing set out. So it's been really one of the things that's taken the most time in this. Certainly, it's taken time to develop the technology. But the other thing that's taken a lot of time is getting all of the stakeholders, all the people who would have to cooperate in this game together in the same room and, and agree on a plan of action. Okay, you know, if you're a fuel provider, you could say, okay, yeah, you want me to build stations, but what if you don't show up with the cars? If you're a car maker, you can say, okay, I'll bring my cars here, but what if there's no stations to fuel them? I'm not going to give them to my consumers and they can't fuel them. So you need to bring together people who don't work together usually to come up with a brand new system. And in my experience, getting that group together to plan together, to build up trust, to come up with a plan that everybody can get with, um, is really a very fascinating and can be time-consuming project and process. And what's worked in California is a group called the California Fuel Cell Partnership, which has brought together the car makers, fuel suppliers, the policy makers, people representing consumers, people who have refueling stations who might put this hydrogen pump there, and get everybody to talk about it and, and 
float ideas and come up with a plan that everybody can get behind. And that's really been critical, is just having that dialogue and building that trust. And that's something that takes, you know, five or 10 years, I would say. And that's a similar process is playing out in other, other parts of the world, in Japan and, and Germany. And that's a really interesting part of seeing the birth of this sort of new ecosystem, energy ecosystem. Thank you very much. I, I hope I make it to see the hydrogen future. Hey, man, you're a lot younger than I am, and I'm going to make it. I'm already seeing it. between us and no it ain't what you think this ain't a case of infidelity pushing me to the brink you're stuck inside a bidding war you're arguing over price you hardly even acknowledge my existence when you cradle your device. Blue teeth, strained eyes, you bite your lip and you bow your head. I only wish you'd pay as much attention to me when we're in bed <laughs> I mean I'm wearing next to nothing I even put on a little spice I long for you to hold me in your arms but instead you cradle your device Come on, let's take a holiday Don't you think that would be nice? Give you one more minute Go on then, cradle your device Cradle your device